0: Peak Wealth Management proudly presents Finding True Wealth with certified financial planner Nick Hopwood and accredited investment fiduciary, Jim Pilot. Nick and Jim believe by making simple, good financial decisions, you can retire with confidence. And now let's turn it over to your hosts, Nick and Jim. Welcome everyone to episode 69 of the Finding True Wealth podcast. I'm Nick Hopwood, your host for today. and. Today's going to be a Meet the Manager podcast where we'll be speaking with Portfolio Manager and Professor John Fourlines III. Uh, Mr. Fourlines is the Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager of the J.A. Fourlines Global Suite of Strategies, and they're a member of the W.E. Donahue Tactical Asset Management family. Uh, Mr. Fourlines and his strategies won the 2016 Strategist of the Year. And they were named a finalist in the 2018 Strategist of the Year, as named by InvestNet. Uh, as I mentioned, John is also a professor. He's the beh- Behavioral Finance Professor at Duke. Today, we're going to get to know Mr. Four Lines, learn about his team and how they manage money, and get his thoughts on 2019 and what he's expecting to see in 2020. Well, John, uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, it's We don't get to do a lot of these things, and uh, we, we like to do them for our advisors who um, take the time to understand our story and, and understand the markets, and so it's greatly appreciated.
0: Well, I know our clients appreciate being able to kind of meet the manager, so to speak. Oftentimes, clients, uh, you know, they get their statements and they look at the ups and downs and they're not really sure what's going on behind the scenes. So this is a, a great treat for the, for them.
1: Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that we'll talk about probably later, but um, it's a behavioral finance principle that um, when clients receive things like statements, they always see the world in terms of gains and losses, whether or not they, they've actually even realized losses. Uh, or gains, and, um, and you know, the, it's a continuum that you're dealing with as an investor, and a lot of times clients like to dice it up and look at these moments where, you know, it induces fear or panic or greed, and it makes the advisor's job so much harder because you know, precisely because, you know, you have these monthly reports that um, really, you know, they're not helpful in the long run, to clients. Um, whereas, for example, an annual review uh, is helpful because you, you've had a you've had a num you had a, a time lapse that's significant, um, and you can assess how your managers are doing, and you can assess uh, markets and all that stuff in um, in, a, in a big lens as opposed to a really sharp um, short lens where people might be more emotional.
0: And who else would be a better behavioral finance expert than the professor himself?
1: <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. I mean, there's
1: a few of us doing it. Um, you know, Professor Schiller up at uh, Yale has uh, obviously has created his own um, sort of uh, price index. Um, professor Siegel over at University of Pennsylvania has worked with Wisdom Tree, the ETF company. Um, And, of course, I've worked um, with my own company and and now with W. Donahue up in Boston um, as a, uh, I guess you call it a a chief strategist role. So there's a few of us out there um, um, who are actively engaged in the the business side of things. There's also some others, but they're in more, I would call them more, um, uh, you know, fintech type. Uh, ventures like Dan Areal is involved with um, at Duke. He's involved with Lemonade, which is the uh, online insurance company. Uh, but there's a there's a good reason for you know, behavioral finance principles to be used in finance generally, uh, all all kinds of finance. And you know we we can talk about a couple of those things as we get
0: going here. Yeah. So at Duke, uh, you have how many how many classes do you teach?
1: So I teach four a year, two per semester. Um, they all have a behavioral finance, uh, sort of a behavioral science backing to them. Um, uh, there's a core behavioral finance piece that's also available to to people online, but it's it's a meets once a week uh, in the spring. And then there's also a private capital course, which is long time, uh, you know, a long time um, uh, business of mine, which is um, earlier stage. Uh, seed and venture capital for um, what what most people now refer to as fintech. We kind of refer to it as financial services innovation. Um, So I teach that one. It's called private capital as well. Um, And then I have an interdisciplinary course which kind of plays on two of my undergraduate, uh, you know, undergraduate um, passions, which was, of course, economics and also English. Uh, And it's called Shakespeare and Markets, which is sort of looks at um, behavioral science um, from a literary perspective um, and combining that with current events. So, for example, you know, we'd study plays like The Tempest because it teaches uh, that, you know, there's life is a lot more random and chaotic than most people um, uh, think. You know, for example, you and me are actually totally random because their parents probably met randomly. You know, that's 95% of the world who don't have arranged marriages are basically subject to random selection. So uh, it kind of starts there and then gets even more chaotic uh, as it goes along and the truth is very few people realize that, you know, how randomness and chaos play such a big role and the Tempest is a great way to illustrate that. And so each one of the little blocks um, you know, the framing of the course is, is from the Shakespeare plays. There's about five of them. And, and there's a big important, you know, behavioral science, um, or macro lesson embedded in each one of them. So it's, it's the one I do in the fall and I could teach two sections of it. Total, you know, total of about 85 students a year, which is all seniors and it's, uh, and some graduate students. So it's sort of, it's very rewarding and it, kind of feeds on the stuff I do for, for business as well, which is kind of exciting.
0: Yeah. You know, I I would like to maybe sample one of those classes, but you can, you know, I'll just skip the blue book and the final exam, if that's okay with you.
1: <laughs> well, i don't do final exams. I make them do projects. Like I make them do, they're, they're seniors. So they're going out in the real world and uh, they have to stand up on their feet and explain what they learned from the course and, and, and hone in on a specialized topic. So, uh, you probably do pretty well at that.
0: Now, my cousin, my cousin Mary went to Duke. Uh, she was there back with Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley and Grant Hill and those guys. And I went to Michigan, and so we had the the Fab Five during the same era. Of course, Duke had the better outcome, but fun times. And now you are on the Duke athletic board, and I got to say that Duke lost last week. That was kind of that kind of nasty.
1: Yeah, you know, but that's the unpredictable nature of uh, sports, actually. And I think it's gotten even more so over time. The you know, college basketball has a particular problem, which is it's incredibly bifurcated or even from even from a perception and a reality standpoint. So there's the perception is that the top 100 players think they're pros immediately when they come out of high school. Um, And, of course, there's only generally one, maybe two, who who are truly ready for that uh, amount of rigor. Um, But what it does is it tends to – you kind of start each year as a coach. You kind of start each year with a brand-new set of players, which is um, a lot more stressful than the old days where, you know, you could keep – People around for two or three years minimum, and you know, build uh, build a veteran team. And so, the game you're referring to, which I actually only seen snippets of, but just from the the you know what I've seen is that um, uh, the the Houston team um, was just so uh, veteran and strong, and you know, really playing against. Uh, three f- and four freshmen and at a time and that's 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 a you know it's kind of like a men versus boys thing um a a, a veteran player um, who's been at it for three or four years is is going to be more consistent in on court performance than than even the best freshman just because of the experience level so you know um hats off to stephen F austin for pulling that off and um, also, you you have to understand, you know that losses, especially early season losses, can be incredibly
0: educating if you do, you know, if you learn from them. So that ha- you hopefully know, you, you don't want to you don't want to be peaking in in November or December. It's best to take some bruises and some lumps and some beatings early on, and then peak yeah. in March and April for sure. No,
1: that kind of leads us to you know the idea that you want to keep your investment team together. For example. One yeah. of the things we do is, you know, I've been doing this now. It'll come up into 16 years now, and I had 16 years at J.P. Morgan before that. And and, and our team is really strong. We, we constantly try to build it, um, you know, just like, just like um, the basketball coaches do. You try to bring in young people every year and uh, train them and, and hopefully keep them. And that's, I think, what we've been
0: kind of fortunate in doing that, over, you know, over time. So you kind of consider yourself uh, like a credit macro specialist. Tell me what that means.
1: Yeah. So um, credit macro is just simply that um, it's, a, it's a real, it's a it's sort of a real, what I call a real world model. And that is that, you know, ever since the dawn of capitalism, you've had a trade off between, private, that is, corporate uh, or private interest. So, so for example, way back in the day, you had these trading companies that were privately owned but publicly sanctioned by governments. Well, similarly, now you have um, private corporations which are essentially under the regulatory regime of various governments. So, for example, if you're a bank in the United States, you're, you're governed by not only the Securities Exchange Commission, you're covered by the Federal Reserve Bank system, and a host of other types of regulatory authorities. So, um, the, the largest single trade-off, if for us in looking at private corporations globally, is the trade-off between um, what those private corporations do and what the public um, central banks provide in terms of liquidity, and also rate um uh setting so those that that's a big trade off because you know typically where you have the big uh, market disruptions is when you have um a illiquid a, a environment that's characterized by restrictive rates so that's what happens when you have a 2007 where you have um the fed setting rates really high and other central banks all over the Uh, world doing the same thing. Uh, Growth stops, um, you know, corporations stop investing and suddenly you're in a recession and you have major stock market correction. And and like 2008, sometimes you also have other bad things that go along with that. But that trade-off can be measured pretty uh, simply. And the way we do it is there's two critical measures. You look at the creation of private credit relative to uh, GDP in each one of the big central bank regions, and there's only nearly four of them. And then you do the same thing, um, you know, with uh, um, non-financial leverage relative to GDP. And those are really, really high indicators. People always say, well, you know, what's the best in recession indicator? Well, it sure isn't the inverted real, you know, yield curve that everybody talks about, which has a really spotty track record. But generally speaking if you go back to the 40s, looking carefully at that credit private credit public authority trade-off is a really good way to do it and it's worked worked very well for us over the you know last 16, 17
0: years as well. So if you can kind of give us your thoughts uh, for 2019 as it's coming to a close what what do you think have been the main drivers of the markets this year and the good things and the bad things?
1: Uh, well, I think the main driver for this year is um, uh, sort of similar um, to, you know, 2000 sort of 2017, um, which is that because of easier financial conditions, um, you've had a better, um, you've had a better um, environment for growth. Um, and you nowhere can more can you see that than in, the green shoots that are once again appearing in places like Europe, which we kind of declared dead on arrival back in uh, 2018. Um, but nevertheless, that's what's, what's occurred. Um, and in the US, you know, we went through um, a rate tightening back in late 2018 that um, sort of stunned the global economy. Uh, obviously, we're, you know, it takes a long time to recover from a, a very, very, I'd say, even catastrophic balance sheet recession like 2008, um, and it's obviously that the economy is not ready for a regime of high rates, and therefore, um, it's a it's a good environment for corporations, and that probably will continue. My my guess is being a not only a presidential election year here in the United States. Uh, it's also a big election year uh, in obviously in the UK, um, and you've also got a tremendous amount of ch- uh, turnover and change happening in the EU as well. So my guess is you're going to have continued, um, you, you know, continued um, easy financial conditions, um, and as long as the I think the political economy stuff stays. Um, stays under, you know, I guess you'd call it, under control, um, and mainly there I'm referring to things like wars and stuff like that. Um, I I think we're in pretty good shape for next year. Um, and 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 you know, I guess the way we look at it is, well, every month we kind of, you know, we meet and talk about it, and do we? And we always ask our questions. Do we make, have to make changes? I think we had to make make fewer ones this year, and hopefully next year. My guess is we'll probably have to make a few more, just because, again, those political economy things will bubble up and probably cause some concern. But f- over the over the course of the year, I don't think I don't see the big bogey happening, which is what most people should be afraid of, and of course we are too, uh, which is which is a, a global recession. And that's kind of reflected in the way we look at a cur- our current house view, which is you know we're not in recession. And for the most part, um, stocks, equities all over the world are cheaper than bonds. Um, and I may, may add, you know, that a lot of people have this notion in their head that um, bonds are safer than equities. There, There's, you know, historically, there are many times where that's not even the case. Um, and this is certainly one of them. If you look at the last rolling, on, you know, for three years, the, uh, the, 20-year treasury the supposedly one of the safest quote quote unquote safest securities in the whole world has had more volatility than the, you know, the, the global stock market index, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. But again, that's, um, that's, uh, um, a signal that there's really easy financial conditions that rates being low, um, um, that, um, And every time you have these political economy disruptions, bonds will go up. And then when it settles down, they go back down to sort of where they should be, uh, which reflects kind of a steady state, fragmented, low growth environment. That's that's the that's the world we're in. Um, So that's why we favor, you know, quality equities. We we favor um, value where you can we call value where you can get it which is, you know, hard sometimes when um, equities stay favored over bonds for a while. But nevertheless, I think it's still there. Um, And then we're just real cautious on fixed income just because um, you don't have to, you know, if you think about it, uh, you don't really have to stretch for yield. uh, And where you can stretch for yield, often it's, for example, in things like uh, uh, blue chip stocks, you know, you can get you can get really really good high quality European companies in you know places like Switzerland and, and um, the UK and 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 France and Germany for that have five and a half six percent yields on them. So it's almost like, uh, gee, that's not a bad place to wait because all the risk is premiums already
0: built into them. Yeah, that's a heck of a yield. You know, a lot of people are talking about. Potential earnings recession and the low GDP, the stubbornly low GDP rates. Now, how can we get traditional stock market-like returns in that kind of environment? Is it does it have to be an expanding PE multiple? Uh,
1: it's gonna it's gonna have to be. Uh, yeah, it's gonna have to be that, but it's also gonna have to be um, uh, a what I call a continue rolling over of of, of improved. Corporate earnings. So, I think what what's characterized the the world equity market since say 2000, really since 2014, is you've had a lot more emphasis on certain sectors doing well, certain regions doing well than we used to. In the old days, you'd have, okay, rates are low, um, all everybody's doing well, all sectors are on go, except perhaps maybe the the most offensive ones, you know, like utilities or consumer staples. But nowadays, you could have a rolling, you could even have a rolling recession in sectors or regions. Perfect example is in 2015, all of our emerging markets are in recession because China's in recession. And, um, and then uh, you had a recession in commodities. So being able to avoid those areas as a manager is a really important thing to kind of look look at the market and see where you didn't want to be is sometimes you get, I always argue sometimes you get paid as a manager for not being in places where you shouldn't be more even than say a good idea where you can make money because you got there before other people did. That's probably a harder Mm -hmm. thing to do. Um, But yeah, I think that there's still opportunities precisely because of that, that, you know, episodic, um, rolling nature of growth, you know, some some regions have it for a while and then they don't. And then, you know, as like for a global managers, you just have to re-
0: recognize that and try to go someplace else. So, back to your house view outlook, it sounded like you said that you kind of like uh, value more than growth right now. Um, and then I want to ask you also, what's your view on the US versus international? Because for so many years, Value and in international have underperformed growth in the United States.
1: Yeah, that is true for buy and hold. I always, uh, it's kind of funny. I had this question last year. Um, um, you know, we've done quite well internationally if you look for the last seven years, and that's because precisely kind of what I said about 2015. We there are times where we had have had in the last seven years, we've had no exposures to international. Um, Based again, you know, back to that credit macro theme that I talked about where, you know, um, for a while there w- there wasn't a lot of liquidity in some of those markets and there's no reason, you know, for us to be there. Um, but now I think two things. I think, one, we've, we're we focusing more on quality. Uh, it's, that's probably, you know, 25% of our whole equity portfolio, both, you know, in, a, in Europe. Uh, internationally and also in U.S. and then second probably value behind it. Um, and not a lot, you know, and I think the way I, I describe growth is uh, it's for us is a factor, it's often subsumed in things like quality and sometimes it's subsumed in value as well because you, you don't know actually sometimes when value is going to turn around and do well. Um, so we also, Figuring out that, you know, I I always hate forecasting just as a behavioral science thing because Mm -hmm. no one can really see the future. But um, if you look at where we are in the cycle um, where we've been having these rolling credit cycles and and much smaller business cycles uh, than we used to, The longer picture is still kind of cloudy like everybody says gee we're late cycle we've been in this is one of the longest bull markets for equities ever but you know I would argue that it could go on for quite a long time unless you have those fundamental changes in the credit markets that I mentioned credit and rate markets that I mentioned earlier Um, so I'd say yeah we're we like quality and value probably best and I'd say also right now we probably prefer uh, uh, international exposure to U.S. exposure, just just to own that relative value proposition. That you know you can get good ch- companies really cheap, uh, and as long as you're not in recession, globally you're you're probably going to get paid for those. And and for for this year for sure we've been
0: paid for them. And and John, if you don't mind, one last question. Kind of on the same note of growth versus value and U.S. versus international. What about energy? Because it's, energy seems to be just left in the dust. You know, after the 2015 oil drop from like 100 down to 30, the price of oil is oil is kind of stabilized. But you know, the the energy stocks, the energy sector, just seems to be just brutally left behind.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I, I think I think we kind of you know in the in the we've been pretty consistent with the house view on this for a while now. Um, oil is really tough. If you kind of look at the let's just look briefly at the sort of I call it the ten year arc of oil, where if you go back to two thousand eight nine period, you had a you had a time where uh, oil hit as high as one hundred and forty five dollars a barrel, and what came out of that era was an almost an unprecedented um, technological and capital boom, particularly in places like the United States um, where um, so many innovations went into the oil patch. Uh, And there's three major basins in the United States where lots of um, exploration began and a lot of supply came online. Now in the, in the meantime, think about where we were historically, that whole same period, 2010 through 13, where U.S. is just establishing a massive turnaround in its own oil supply uh, regime. You had Arab Spring and a complete disruption in the Mideast. So uh, all that oil uh, was, was it was beneficial that it was hitting uh, the, the markets, but since since it's, Um, You know, since things have calmed down relatively, although they're never really calm in the Middle East, you've had Saudi and you had the Emirates and you had Iran, all of them, big oil producers, all of them uh, needing uh, to pump uh, for revenues. And so if if you kind of think of it that way, the world's in sort of a, um, uh, a massively oversupplied state. And that's always a recipe for lower prices or as you and I think you accurately said it, we're, we're probably stabilized here in the sort of the 45 to 65 range. Um, but there's the problem with that range is at the mid to low end, it's really hard for traditional oil producers like the Saudis, Russians and Iranians to make money on that because because of, of the cost uh, of where and where they are. Um, and it's on the margin, uh, U.S. is actually poised to do better, although there are sp- plenty of places, particularly in the north part of the United States, up in the Dakota basins, where uh, that's not enough. You know, you need a little higher price in order to justify the kinds of expenses that go into to, to creating it. So I guess the answer is just in a good old economist supply demand type, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Answer, Um, but that I think that's where we are, and um, that doesn't mean you can't make money in certain places. uh, But um, I I think it's overall we're going to be probably cautious um, on on oil for
0: for a bit of time here. Gotcha. Well, John, I think that's all the time we have today, and I want to offer my congratulations on your 2016 Strategist of the Year and 2018 runner-up as strategist of the year best wishes for 2020 and also uh a duke run to the final four well
1: you know i think uh back at you nick because you know michigan's got a uh got one of those fab five coaches uh in yeah. in the seat, uh and you know i think he's done a good job already he's, he's you know he's got him ranked in the top five already and, and for a first year coach that's pretty amazing i think The first year Coach K at Duke was in the chair, I think he was about a 500 coach his first year. So sounds like Michigan's off to a really great start, and I wish you guys great luck as well.
0: Thank you, John. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Nicholas. I'll see
1: you you soon.
0: You've been listening to certified financial planner Nick Hopwood and accredited investment fiduciary Jim Pilot on the Finding True Wealth podcast, sponsored by Peak Wealth Management. You can learn more about Peak Wealth Management by visiting peakwm.com or follow on Twitter at nhopwood1.